listening to the Axis Church Sermon Podcast, a series revealing Christ in the Old Testament, broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to glorify God and make much of Jesus by making disciples and planting churches, making it hard to get to hell from Nashville, Tennessee. For more information, please visit us online at theaxischurch.org. I was telling Nate before uh, we came out that um, something happened this week, which was a first in my life. Uh, I've had the opportunity, for different reasons, to be teaching at least on a semi-regular basis since about the time I was 17. And I really enjoy the process of of teaching. Uh, I enjoy the process of getting into the Word myself and... um, you know, just in terms of having the opportunity for myself to gain a deeper understanding of the word in order to share it. And, and this week, for the first time, I, I felt like I wasn't excited to preach. And it was, I think, God's grace. Because God showed me this week that preaching is so much more than I thought it was. Um, I thought that preaching was a matter of clear communication. I thought it was a matter of being doctrinally correct. I thought it was a matter of merely being easy to understand. And what I was convicted of this week in my own soul is that, you know, as we sang, you know, let us drink and thirst no more. That which we hope to drink from this morning is the word of God. And the word of God is pure and faultless and life-giving, life-changing. And as I look at myself, the means through which God is delivering this word this morning, I'm convicted by the fact that it doesn't matter how pure and clean the water is, if you pour it through a rusty drain pipe, it comes out dirty. And I'm, I'm sitting in the tension and in the balance of saying, God, it is incredible that you can use a sinner like myself to convey anything of lasting meaning while still feeling like, man, I'm not qualified to get behind a microphone. I am not qualified to teach. And honestly, I I don't know that I ever will be. Um, And so it's with that attitude that that I'm teaching this morning, and and, uh, I just think we have to start, we have to start in prayer. So please bow your head with me. Lord God, We are in awe that you would call any sinner to be your child, much less that you call broken people like us to be those through whom you build your kingdom. Lord God, I pray that you would come, that your spirit would come this morning, and that it would not be my words communicated effectively that would lead people to reconsider some aspect of their life, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and would raise that which is dead to life 
I cannot do that through analogy. I cannot do that through humor. I, can do, I cannot do that through communicating clearly. Only you can do that through the power of your spirit. Help us not to believe that it is merely good theology that saves. But I pray even this morning that we would be leaning on you, trusting that it is by you alone through the power of your spirit that you raise people from spiritual death to spiritual life and glorify yourself in the process. We pray that you would do that this morning, not because the Axis Church is awesome, not because we're located in a cool city, not because of whatever, but God, we pray that you would come and you would work for your glory. I pray that as I speak, I would fade that you may be seen. Do that for our joy, but ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to jump right into the story of Samson, and then, uh, and then we'll kind of go back and break it up. Uh, the story of Samson comes out of the book of Judges. Judges occurs, if we're looking at the big story of the biblical, you know, just the, the big story of the Bible, starting with Genesis, rolling through Re- Revelation, Judges is kind of towards the beginning. It's right after the portion of the Bible called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, So it's early on in Israel's history. They have left Egypt. They have wandered in the wilderness, and they have settled in the promised land. And the book of Judges is written as as basically a case against Israel for why they need a godly king. If If Judges was made into a movie, you wouldn't take your kids. There is some rough stuff in there. Lots of stat. I don't know. I, I don't even know if it's appropriate for me to talk about. Uh, I'll leave that for whoever preaches those sermons. But there's a lot of weird stuff that happens in Judges, and we see that basically the Israelites they roll or they roll into into Canaan. And something that doesn't occur to us often is that these are people who basically lived as nomads for 40 years, and they come into. Uh, they come into Canaan, they come into the land flowing with milk and honey, and there's people that are established there, and they've been living there for a long time. And if you've been living in a tent made out of a dead animal for 40 years, cities look really attractive. If you've been traveling with the same small group of people for 40 years, and you get into a new land, and all of a sudden there's like girls that shower, that looks pretty good. And so the, the Israelite people, the, the Hebrew people, have, have arrived in the promised land, and they're looking around at these established cities, these people groups that have culture. They're looking at their temple, which is the, the tabernacle, which is a, kind of a, a very nice tent. And then they're looking at the, at the temples of the other gods, this, the gold and bronze sculptures and all the different things that go along with the worship of these other gods. And they're looking at their own national identity and thinking, okay, well, this is who we are, but look at everybody else. And so the book of Judges is over and over and over again showing how the people of Israel are distracted by what they see around them. And despite having 40 years of God providing for them daily, almost take every opportunity they can to go chase after that which God has said, stay far away from. So it's in the middle of this that we come to the story of Samson. The first verse 
of the story of Samson in chapter 13, verse 1, says that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This evil was going after foreign women, going after foreign gods. And so God handed over Israel to the Philistines for 40 years. The Philistines are a reoccurring bad guy in the Old Testament. There was intermarrying, there was worshiping Canaanite gods, and there was ignoring their own law. And in the midst of this, the Lord God, he comes, or he sends an angel who speaks to a woman. And the angel of God says to this woman that she's going to have a son. And that he will begin the process of saving Israel. He's what's called a Nazarite. He's one who's called to be set aside for God, which means that there are three things that all Nazarites must follow. They can't cut their hair. They can't drink anything from the vine. So, um, like, they can't, uh, like, certain forms of vinegar, uh, wine, grape juice, etc. And um, they can't touch anything that's dead. So those three things. Hair, no wine, don't touch things that are dead. And those were symbols of, of what set a Nazarite apart. And then it doesn't really tell us anything about his growing up, but it jumps right to uh, Samson grew up and was blessed by the Lord. The first thing that we see Samson do, his entrance into his own story in Scripture, is him going to his parents, and he's seen a woman from among the Philistines, and he likes her. And he says to his parents, go get me that woman. He uses the statement, he says, she is right in my eyes. And so his parents say, well, you know, isn't there... Isn't there a nice Hebrew girl that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you, could, you could get a nice Jewish girl? Wouldn't that be great? And he's like, no, 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 no. I want her. Now, keep in mind, this is a man that is set aside for the service of God, just willfully defying what God has said and saying, it is right in my eyes. Go get her. Despite the fact that it's completely wrong in God's eyes, it's right in my eyes. That's all the justification I need. Go get me what I want. And then there's kind of this interesting, weird story is that as they're going from their home, um, just about 10 miles away to where she lived to, to go, uh, I guess, get her, um, a lion comes and attacks them as he's with his dad on, on the way to, to go get his wife. And um, he tears the lion apart. It says that he, tear, he tore the lion apart like a young goat. I think that was supposed to be helpful for the Hebrews. I have no idea how one tears apart a young goat. Uh, I'm assuming it's pretty violent. Um, so on, on the way that he kills this, this young lion that, that is attacking him, um, and then on the way back, or uh, another, another time as he's passing by where he was, where this lion attack was, he notices that the carcass is still there. And inside of the carcass is uh, a beehive. And so in, in the midst of, like keep in mind, he's a Nazarite, so he's not allowed to mess with dead stuff. So he sees this carcass, he sees the beehive, and he goes and he takes some of the honey out, he eats it for himself, and then he shares it with his family. So it's kind of strike one. Of, of the three Nazarite vows, strike one, he's, he's messing with dead stuff. And then the next verse, it says that he throws kind of a raging party to celebrate his new marriage. Um, in, if you're looking in your own Bible, in 
uh, Judges 14.10, it says, probably says that he threw a feast or he hosted a party. Um, for those of you, it, if you have a study Bible, there's probably a little note there. And if you read the note, it says that there's implied that this isn't just a feast, this is like a kager. That there is, this is a party where partying will happen. Um, it is, it is implied, the Hebrew word that's used there implies this is a, this is a party where people check their keys at the door. Um, and so that's, that's strike two. He's consuming alcohol. And in the midst of this party, he's, he says to a bunch of the Philistines who've come out to party with him, he's, he says, I have this riddle for you. And if you can't find, if you can't get the answer to the riddle, you have to give me 30 basically outfits. Clothes were much more expensive. They didn't have, you know, a giant, um, you know, a giant clothing factory where they could just, you know, turn out shirts. Like if you had a, if you had a shirt, like that was your shirt. Um, you, you didn't, you didn't switch out. Nobody went to their closet. Was like, what am I going to wear today? Like you, you have a robe. You have a shirt. And so for him to say, if if you can't get this right, you are giving me thirty outfits. This is this is a big ask. And they say, sure. And so. He asked them, he says, out of the eater came something, came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And so they start puzzling over this and thinking about it. And so if, if they can't get it right, he gets 30 outfits. If he, or if they do figure it out, then he has to give each one of them an outfit. So 30 outfits are on the line. His wife, who is a Philistine, um, she starts saying, Samson, what's the answer? Samson, what's the answer? And he won't tell her. And the Philistines are badgering the wife saying, hey, you're one of our people. You can't forsake us. Look, just because, yeah, you're married to this guy, but you're still, you're still one of us. You're not going to sell us out like that. So she keeps badgering her, her new husband. Samson, what's the answer? And eventually she says, why do you hate me? You don't love me. And so Samson tells her, and she immediately goes and she tells the Philistines. So the Philistines show up and they say, hey, Samson, we got the answer. What's sweeter than honey and what's stronger than a lion? And he's not happy about the situation. Um, so he flips out, goes down to a town, kills 30 people and takes the clothes off their back. Comes back and that's what, that's what he gives these Philistines. And in his frustration, in his anger, he storms home. After he leaves, he, he's left his wife in the midst of the Philistines. And they think like, oh, well, Samson's gone, like for good. He killed 30 people and left in a huff. So they take his new wife and they give it to his Philistine best man, which doesn't help the situation. So Samson, in his frustration that his wife has now been given to his best man, who is a Philistine, he rounds up 300 foxes. I don't know how one does that. And he takes these 300 foxes and he ties them, he ties their tails together. So you have 100 pairs of frustrated foxes, or 150. Ooh, that was almost really bad. Um, I swear I went to school. Um, 150 pairs of angsty foxes, and in tying them, their tails together, he ties a torch in there as well. 
and then sets them free in the Philistines' fields so that they, the, the, these frustrated foxes are running down, just burning down all of the Philistines' harvest. You can understand that they're not really happy about this, so the Philistines can't find Samson, but they go find his wife that's been given to his best man. They take her and they take her father and they burn them to death, which once again just kind of exacerbates the situation. So all of the Philistines who are ruling over Israel, they come looking for Samson. And they're not just mad at Samson, they're mad at all of Israel now. Samson's guilt is making things very difficult for the rest of Israel. And so all of Israel, they they gather 3,000 people to go look for Samson so that they can hand him over to the Philistines and say, look, stop being a problem for us. If we can get rid of Samson, then the Philistines will get off our back. So that's exactly what they do. They go to where he's hiding, 3,000 strong, and say, look, we're handing you over. He says, fine, do it. So they tie him up. They take him to the Philistines. A 1,000 Philistines come out to meet Samson and the crew of 300 Hebrews. And Samson, while being bound, he sees the jawbone of a dead animal picks it up, and kills a thousand Philistines. This victory allows uh, Israel to be freed from the ruling of the Philistines. Him wiping out a thousand of their troops secures peace for Israel for 20 years. Towards the end of this 20 years, says that Samson goes down in, in, verse, or in chapter 16. Samson goes to a Philistine town, and they're still enemies. He goes to a Philistine town, and he sleeps with a prostitute. While he is in with the prostitute, the people of the town say, here's Samson, here's our enemy, this is our chance, let's get him. And so they wait for him to come out. And then there's this part of the story that just, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this, but it says that he came out from where he was, went to the city gates, ripped the city gates out of the ground, and then ran up a mile for 40 miles, or ran up a mountain for 40 miles. I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. I, in college, I was, I was a rugby coach for a little while, and I kind of geek out about strength and conditioning. I, Sermon writing was diff- really difficult this weekend because it's the CrossFit games, and I, like every opportunity, I'm checking my phone. And um, this guy, if he was, let's say he's roughly 20 when he gets married the first time, and then there's these 20 years where he's secured peace for Israel. So I mean, he's like he's flirting with 40 at this point, ripping up, you know, maybe a thousand pound gate out of the ground, and then going for a 40 mile walk with a thousand pounds on his back. That guy is probably juicing. (laughs) He's, yeah, he's not competing clean. (laughs) After this, most of us probably know the story of Delilah, another Philistine woman that he meets, he falls in love with. And Delilah says to him, she says, why are you so strong? What is it that makes you strong? Because just like his first wife, the Philistines come and they say, hey, what, you know, how, do, how do we beat this guy? Because the Philistines just really want to see Samson dead. And so they tell her, hey, what, what needs to happen 
You know, what's the source of his strength? How can we finally get this guy? And so she says, hey, Samson, um, what's, what's the source of your strength? And he says, well, if you take fresh bowstrings that are still wet, which would have been really weak, he says, you know, that, that, if you bind me with that, fresh, weak bowstrings that haven't had a chance to dry, bind me with that, and then that's the source. You know, then, then I'm bound, I'm weak, I'm just like any other man. She says, oh, okay. And then she ties him up with fresh bowstrings and has the Philistines hide in the back room, and then they come out to get him. She says, Philist, or she says Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He jumps up, rips it apart, and uh, Philistines run away. A second time, she goes back to him, and you think that he would have figured out at this point when she says, hey, um, what's the source of your strength? You know, why, would you, why would you lie to me? I mean, how emotionally manipulative is this? Hey, I tried to kill you, but you're the one in the wrong because you didn't tell me the truth. If you're in a relationship like that, it's time to get out. So she comes to him again and says, what is, what is it that will make you weak? And he says, well, if you, if you bind me with new ropes, I can't get out. And so she does the same thing. While he's sleeping, she binds him with new ropes calls out, hey, the Philistines are here. The Philistines come out. He rips the rope off, chases the Philistines off. And then she goes back to Samson. She said, you lied to me again. And I'm amazed that the text doesn't say, yeah, and you tried to kill me again. But she says, what is the source of your strength? What, what can make you weak? And he says, well, if you take my hair and you put it in a loom, then I'm going to be weak, which I think like now he's like, is she going to buy this? Put, try to weave my hair and, uh, and that, that will make me weak. And so she does that while he's sleeping. She takes his hair and she puts it in the web of the loom and, and then she calls out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He gets up, clears the house again. And then she comes and she says, basically again, why do you hate me? How can you say that you love me when you lie to me? And so he finally tells her, if you cut my hair, my strength will leave. And so he falls asleep. They call someone in. They shave his head. She calls out again, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He wakes up and he says, I'm going to do exactly what I did all the other times, but he can't. Scripture said that the Lord left him. The final act of, of denying his Nazarite vow. He had consumed from the vine. He had touched that which was dead. And finally, he had his hair cut. He was seized. They poked out his eyes and they attached him to a mill where they left him just milling uh, oats or corn or wheat or whatever. After he had been in the dungeon grinding at the mill, it doesn't say for how long, but the Philistines throw a big party and they say, Let's bring out Samson. Let's be entertained by the formerly great Samson. So Samson comes out, and they chain him between two pillars. It says that there's 3,000 people at the party, and as Samson is there right in the center of the party, they're walking around, and he can hear them saying stuff like, praise be to Dagon. Dagon was the Philistines' god. Praise be to Dagon that he has handed us Samson. How great is our god that he has handed over our enemy to us. 
great is Dagon. And Samson, while he's hearing this, them praising their false god, he himself cries out to God and he says, God, let me avenge my eyes. If you're, as I was reading the story, I got to this point, I just started hoping like, oh, it's his chance. Get it together, Samson. That like, you, the, the speech you want him to make is as he's standing there strung out between these two pillars and hearing them worship their God and belittle him and belittle the God of the Hebrews that he's going to cry out and say, God, give me the strength that no one may curse the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Give me strength that you may be made much of and not mocked. Give me strength because your name is great and Dagon is not but rather he says, God, give me strength because I'm so angry about the fact that they have poked out my eyes. You're hoping, it's like, okay, Samson, here's, here's your chance to be the good guy, to be the hero, to be what we want you to be, and even then, he's acting out of the fact that he has a chip on his shoulder. But God hears him, and it says that his hair had begun to grow back. It wasn't that his power was actually in his hair, but rather that his hair symbolized the faithfulness of God a sign that God still had favor on him even in the midst of him being a blind mill worker. And God gives him the strength, and it says that Abraham pulls down the two main pillars of the house, killing the 3,000 Philistines inside. So that in his death, he killed more than he did in his life. And that started the, you know, killing Israel's enemies started the process of setting Israel free. As I look at this story, I kind of want it to be Samson the hero. But as I wrote it out in my, my journal, it was more Samson the hero question mark. Because he, he doesn't look like, he doesn't really look like a hero. I remember growing up, I was a pastor's kid. Um, and when you get birthday gifts as a pastor's kid, you get a lot of weird stuff because people aren't sure like where you are on the spectrum of like what's okay and what's not. So it's like, do we buy Harry Potter or are they not one of the Harry Potter people? Or like, you know, can we buy a G.I. Joe or do they not do violent stuff? So um, I got, I remember I had a Samson action figure uh, and it was him posed with the jawbone. It looks like, like a roided out Kirkwood with a, with a jawbone. And, and it came in, in a box that said, Heroes of the Bible. Uh, and as I was writing this, I, I was wondering, like, I wonder where my, where my nonviolent Samson action figure went because, oh, we don't want to affirm G.I. Joe, Samson. That's what we want our boys to be like. But there's, there's a lot of confusion that surrounds this story because we're not really sure what to do with this guy because he's a complete and utter mess. Uh, I, I did a lot of looking this week for, for other sermons on Samson, and there's not really a lot out there. When I was given this text six weeks ago uh, in staff meeting, somebody was like, hey, Will, do you, you know, can you preach Samson? I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And then I spent about five weeks going, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this fool. He's... I mean, he, he's a, 
an angry meathead who has a wandering eye, and somehow I'm supposed to be like, and here's Jesus. <laughs> I think the last time I heard it preached, it was at a youth event for why we don't date non-believers. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That So as as we look at Samson and as we see his life, what makes this very difficult in trying to look for Jesus in the person and work of Samson is that there's not even a shadow of goodness or righteousness that's seen in him. There is no aspect of Samson's life that we say, well, that, that we want to affirm that, and we see that completed in the person and work of Jesus. It seems that as, as if every aspect of his flawed character is contrary to Christ. And honestly, I, I believe that, that that's the point. I'm going to pray again, and then we'll, we'll start, to, cut, we'll start to, to break this up. Lord God, I pray, that, um, I pray that you would speak clearly this morning. I pray that you would use me to be able to unpack and unfold uh, th- these riches of your text Lord God, even in a difficult text, we pray that you would make yourself clear. We pray that, as Jesus said, that all Scripture points to me. We pray that that would be seen this morning, that you would be made much of. Please give me the ability to communicate in such a way that your spirit would be moving in hearts here. Do that, Lord God. Amen. As I looked at this text, and as you look at the, the person and the life of Samson, what you see, you know, as you know, he's just this complete mess. But as you look at Samson, you see that all of Samson's big flaws, if you look at his life, everything that's really wrong with Samson is really wrong with Israel. The Israelites have come into this land, they've looked around, they've said, wow, there's a lot of pretty stuff. This is a lot better than what we had in the wilderness. I think I want that. Samson represents Israel, and they're coming into the land and going after the other stuff, forsaking their God, going after other gods, just as Samson pursues other women as a picture of forsaking God in order to go after other lovers. He ignores and he tramples on the law. He doesn't just not do what he's supposed to do. He actively does what he's not supposed to do. As Israel has has left the law, as Israel has left that which God has called them to be and is instead pursuing the ways of the land around them, Samson is doing the exact same thing. Samson is a savior for Israel in some minor sense and that he's able to slaughter a lot of their enemies. But Samson is a savior for Israel that looks exactly like Israel. He's a savior in their image. Samson cannot be the solution. Part of our frustration, or kind of the, the difficulty of preaching Samson, is that he doesn't really offer any changing good solutions that we can say, look, this is what he did. And Samson cannot be the solution. He cannot fix the problems of Israel because he is the problem of Israel. He's a part of the problem. He demonstrates the problems of Israel. The problem being 
that at, at, when, when God gathered his people after they had come out of Egypt, he gives them the law and he makes a covenant with his people. And he says, this is who it is that you are called to be. This is who it is that I have designed you to be. You are to be a people that are set apart. And you will live this way. And there's a portion of scripture that we don't really like to dig into that much. Like we love the, the blessings of the covenant. Man, you, you turn on TBN, that's like all they talk about. You're going to have land and goats and you know, I'm going to give you all this stuff. And we love that. You, know, you can find that on a coffee cup, on a coffee cup in a, like a Christian bookstore, no problem. But you're not going to find the t-shirt that says, I will crush you. But that's in there too. There's the covenant blessings, but there's also the covenant curses. If you live according to who I'm calling you to be, this is, this is the land that you're going to go into, and it's, it, it will be well with you in the land that I'm giving you. But he also says, but if you do not continue to follow me, if you go after other gods, if you forsake me for what you find in the land, I'm going to crush you. In Deuteronomy 28, 25, he says, the Lord, and this is, on the condition that, that you leave, you walk away from God, he says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. The problem that Israel has is not the Philistines. The Philistines are not the problem. The Philistines are, a, are indicative of a greater problem. The Philistines are a symptom of a problem. God said, look, if you walk away from me, I will bring your enemies against you. And so God brings the enemies of the Hebrews to them, and they look at their problem and say, okay, this is a political issue. We need a political fix. The problem that Israel is struggling with during the time of the judges is a problem we're still struggling with. It's sin. Their problem is not the Philistines. Their problem is that they have walked away from God. Samson, if we're looking at him as a savior, if we want to make much out of the work of, uh, of, of what he did with his life, I mean, he, he secured 20 years for them. 20 years in the picture of time I mean, that, that, is, that is a mist in the wind. And if the problem is not the Philistines, but the problem is their sin, the problem is that spiritually they're rotting from the inside out, running away from God. Freeing them from political oppression for 20 years is sticking a cartoon Band-Aid on a rotting, gangrenous limb that really just needs to be amputated. Samson is not a solution. He is not the answer. The problem was that Israel needed a savior that dealt with their real problem. Israel needed a hero that would deal with their real issue. The problem was that they had made themselves enemies of God. And this is our problem. Through sin, we have made ourselves enemies of God. God has said, I, ha I have created you with insurmountable purpose and meaning. 
I have created you to use every breath and every heartbeat to be testifying to that which is of ultimate meaning, which is God. And every breath that we use, every heartbeat that we use, outside of what God has said, this is how you are to be, this is how you are to live. That is, it is theft from God. It is sin against God. And so our sin is the same as the Israelites. We daily choose to walk away from that which is ultimately good to trade for something which is fading. And here's our problem, is that if Jesus destroys his enemies, like Samson went out and destroyed his enemies, Jesus destroys me. If, if Samson is the picture of the Savior that we need, if Samson is the picture of the type of Savior that God sends, I'm crushed. You're crushed. We're all in big trouble. In some sense, yeah, like we, we do identify with Israel and that we're the people of God, but also if we're looking at where are we in the story, we're those Philistines that stand at that party looking at the Savior of Israel stretched out and say, how great are we? Our sin is an affront to God. Our sin is mocking God. And if we want to say, where are we? We're, we are the enemies of God. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, it says that basically every, every aspect of who we are, that we are spiritually dead, following, the, following Satan, and that we are by nature objects of God's wrath. Through our sin, we position ourselves against God. You see, Samson is, is the inverse or the opposite of Jesus. Where Samson spends his life being vengeful, Jesus is merciful. Samson secures for a few people, for one ethnic tribe, momentary freedom. And yet we see that through Christ, he has established for people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every family, eternal salvation. Samson, selfish, every choice that he makes throughout his existence, he's putting himself first. Jesus, you cannot find a point at which he is not giving of himself, self-denying Samson ignores and tramples on the law. Jesus fulfills the law in his life. Samson is not a foretaste of the coming Christ, but rather he's a picture of the fact that we're all really messed up, that we are all failures, and that in our heart we so often pursue that which is for us, that which we think will make us happy in the moment. But thank God that our Savior is not Samson and is not like Samson in any way. Jesus, our Savior, is everything Samson wasn't. Samson brought death to his enemies. And the good news of the cross, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that we, as Jesus' enemies, he reconciles to himself. His goodness is our goodness. This is, a, this is a view of reconciliation that does not, like I, I can't fully work out in my mind in that Jesus takes his enemies and he doesn't just stomp 
his enemies. Jesus does not stop me as his enemy, but rather he reconciles his enemies to himself in such a way that Jesus has made me his brother. God the Father, I'm able to call Father, even though I was once an enemy. I don't want to look at Samson and say that's good news. The idea that God justly doles out punishment to those who are against him is not good news for me. If I'm going to rejoice in that, it requires me to put myself in a position where I assume that I am not an enemy of God and that all that I do you know, is, is good. I get, this might tick some of you off. I'm okay with it. Something that I find so grievous in my soul is when I see, especially in social media, Christians who will post things like, they're going to get it, whoever they are, referring to not them, but it's always, oh, it's coming for them. They're going to get it. And they get some sort of joy in that. How do you find joy in someone else's destruction when you understand that you are the enemy and look what Christ did for you? It's not that you know, Christ did not jump off the cross and with joy slay those who mocked him, slay those who belittled him. He was God, and he looked off the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And yet so many of us, we want our God to be like Samson that hung there and says, I'm taking them down. You dare to mock me? Meet death. But yet Jesus looks at those who are literally spitting on God. And in his moment of greatest weakness shows his greatest strength in that he is able to say, forgive them, God. I, I wish I understood that level of grace. Samson uses his death to kill those who mocked him. And Jesus uses his death to bring us, his enemies, to himself. Israel thought that they had an external political ish issue. They thought that the problem, they thought that the reason they weren't experiencing the joy or happiness that they wanted was because of an external problem. They believed a lie, and it's a lie that we all believe, that our problems can be changed by a different approach. So often we look at the, the different issues of our life, the areas where we are unsatisfied and think, you know, if my spouse would just, or if my boss would just, if my kids would just, if my bank account would just, if my, you know, whatever would just, X, Y, or Z, then I'd be able to step into the joy that I really want. Then my life would be where it is that I really want to be, and this is such a lie. Our soul flirts with this idea that true satisfaction is attainable to us through something other than God. And therefore, we forsake an infinitely loving God, running from him in order to take care of something that will end up at a yard sale 20 years from now. And what breaks my heart is that there are churches not only all over the city, but all over this world that will tell you that that, that is what God's about. You, you know, what, what is it that you really want? What is it that you don't have that will lead to your happiness? Hey, God died in order to bind that for you. 
One of the saddest moments of my life was standing behind a pulpit in Uganda. And I look out, it's probably four or five hundred people. And I said, there, there are pastors that will show up here and tell you that if you pray the right prayer or say the right words or believe the right thing, that God's going to give you a lot of kids, that God will give you a lot of money, that God will increase your flocks, that God will give you more land. And as I'm saying this, people in the back are going, amen, hallelujah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Oh, gosh. Like, they, because they had heard that so many times from people that look like myself that had come to America got up and said, you know, if you demonstrate your faith enough, this is what God will do for you, and then have the audacity to pass the, the, a bucket or plate taken from these people who had nothing. Our Savior is so much bigger than just giving us or taking away that which we think we need right in the moment in order to make us happy. And I thank God that our, my Savior is bigger than my bank account. My God is bigger than the current, my current health. Israel forsook the joy that was to be found in relationship with God, the God that spoke the universe into being in order to go after the stuff they saw around them. And it's really easy for us to read the four chapters of Samson's life and to see how he makes a mess of everything and to say, that dude was a mess. Man, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like Samson. But Jeremy and Jacob and I were talking this morning, what would it look like if your life got four chapters? If I, if I get four chapters of my life in Scripture, it, it's not the Sermon on the Mount portion. It's probably going in some weird corner of the Old Testament. Because if it's on my back to be great, if it's on my back to be faithful, me trying in my own strength. I mean, what you see of Samson is not only does he do terrible things, he does terrible things with terrible motives. And me as a believer, I have to confess that even though I do a lot of good things, I do them with terrible motives. I said to my roommate Warren yesterday, Jeremy asked me how, I could, how he could pray for me, and I sent him a text, and I read what I texted him, and I was like, wow, that's pretty profound. And I said to Warren, like, I hate that I'm so prideful. Like, even in saying, like, hey, I need you to pray for me, like, how can I voice this in a way that makes me look awesome? I hate that that's in me. And if, and if I get four chapters of Scripture that's really getting to the root of who I am, it's not going to be pretty. And I can, I can guarantee that your four chapters aren't going to look very awesome either. I mean, is there even one of us that, that would look really good if we were laid out in Scripture? Is there one of us whose life is not driven by selfish intentions? Is there one of us that can go even a day without our own satisfaction being the central factor of how we live? But something that's crazy about Scripture is that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 32, Samson is lifted up as a hero of the faith. Explain that one. The author of Hebrew looks at Samson and says, you know, through, through the power of God, because of his faith, Samson was able to do great things. And that's really, really good news for a scratch and dent, messed up person like myself. 
because it means that even as much of a mess as Samson was, he still counted as righteous. Even as much of a mess as Samson is, running away from God, even in his last breath, being selfish and making it about his vengeance instead of the glory of God for which he was created. His dying breath is focused on himself. And yet Hebrews says, he's righteous because of faith. Samson's not the victor. Samson is not the champion that Israel needed. He's not the type of champion that we need. And I love how all of his deficiencies, all of his weaknesses point to the fact, point forward showing that Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the hero. Failures like Samson, murderers, adulterers, lawbreakers like Samson are redeemed and counted as righteous because we have a real hero who didn't bring death but conquered death. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 53, reads like this. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has won in such a way that does not time out in 20 years. Jesus has won in a way that is not just a political reality, but has rather liberated us in such a way that has eternal implications. He does not just change our situations, but he takes us and produces life. I'm so thankful that my God is bigger than my circumstances, bigger than Uh, health insurance, bigger than my bank account, bigger than my relationships. I'm thankful that my God has resurrected me, an enemy of himself, to be his child. That is victory, and that is a victory that I cannot even begin to comprehend the width or the depth of. Jesus' victory is our victory. I, I, I don't... I don't understand how that works. If I fight somebody and they win, I don't win. If, if, if I am somebody's enemy and they win, I don't win. And yet that's exactly what happens through the cross. That is exactly what happens through the person and work of Jesus is that his victory becomes even the victory for his enemies like us. Death is destroyed, and it is our victory. Sin does not carry a sting, and it's our victory. Jesus says it is finished, and it is our victory. And for insufficient, broken, sin-filled 
people like myself. That's really good news because there's, there's no, I cannot, I cannot white knuckle my way into salvation. I cannot white knuckle my way into a behavior modification that if I read enough devotional material, somehow I can change my position from an enemy of God to his child. There is not enough Bible memorization or soup kitchens in the world to be good enough to move from death to life, from enemy to son or daughter. I'm so thankful that we have a sufficient Savior. This is the point in our service where we celebrate that. Communion is like a a family tradition that we have as believers. Where each week we come together and we take the the bread that represents Jesus' body broken for his enemies. And we take the blood representing, or we take the, the wine or juice representing the blood that Jesus poured out for his enemies. And we refuse to forget that God our Father gave the greatest thing that he had, his own son, God himself, Jesus Christ, that he may reconcile people like us to himself. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, you know, I don't understand how a loving God could pour out judgment. Guys, the more I understand grace, the more I understand my sin, I don't understand how a, how a holy God loves people like us. And yet that is what we celebrate when we come and we do communion, the fact that God went on the cross so that he might make us his sons and daughters. And so as you come forward and you take communion, if you need to repent, take the opportunity. Sit, pray. If you're, if you're living in such a way where you say, there needs to be a change, I'm not living the way that I need to live, take the opportunity to run to the arms of Jesus. We don't, we don't run because God is angry. angry. We run to him Because as those who are in Christ, there's no anger left. As those who are in Christ, it's it's not that God allows you back in the house, but he's kind of passive-aggressive. It's that it's impossible for him to love you anymore. Oh, that's, that's really good news for a sinner like myself. So I'm gonna pray, and then and we will enjoy this time together refusing to forget that the cross is real, that Jesus is enough, and that my Savior, our Savior, is victorious with a victory that doesn't fade. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how great are you that you would love even us. Lord God, we confess that we are not the people that you have called us to be. So often we look at the cross and we run the other direction, believing the lie that that's where satisfaction waits for us. Lord God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, that you are not a hero that shows up and slays us, your enemies, but a hero that shows up and reconciles and adopts your enemies. 
We thank you for this opportunity to celebrate this physical representation of your love and your sacrifice for us. We pray that we would make much of you, and we pray that in all we do throughout the rest of the morning, that it would be for you and for your glory. Make much of yourself. For we know that in the process of making much of you, we find joy. Help us to believe that, Lord God.